This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. My guest this week is Jason Furman. And if you've been listening to this show, you heard me speak with Jason back in mid-February about the outlook for inflation and about what the government can do about it. Of course, a lot has happened since mid-February, not all of it good. Inflation readouts have continued to rise. The Consumer Price Index hit an 8.5% annual increase in April. One big driver of that rise has been Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has pushed up prices for oil and gas and for certain agricultural products. COVID-related disruptions in China, which is a matter I discussed a few weeks ago with Patrick Shavanik, is also a major area of concern for inflation because of the way that's disrupting international trade. Pushing in the opposite direction on inflation, the Federal Reserve has gotten more rhetorically aggressive about coming interest rate hikes. And interest rates, including mortgage rates, have continued their upward march in response to that. So where does that leave us today? Can we expect inflation to start coming down? And what's changed about what the government needs to do about it? And what might some other policies on the agenda, like potential student loan forgiveness, what would those mean for inflation? I brought Jason here to talk about all of that today. Jason is the Aetna Professor of Practice of Economic Policy, jointly at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He co-teaches Principles of Economics, which is the introductory undergraduate economics course at Harvard, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Hi, Jason. Thank you for coming back. Great to be here. So would you say the current economic outlook is better or worse today than it was in February? It's worse than it was in February, and it's worse for the very simple reason that Russia invaded Ukraine, and that has had a set of reverberations, both raising inflation and lowering growth. In addition, as you said, there's the lockdown in China. You know, those were frankly fully forecastable um, in February. So to me, that's not at all a surprise, but it's certainly not good news. And so what does that mean for how we approach inflation here in the U.S.? Because we've been talking a lot about demand-driven inflation, where basically the government handed out big stimulus checks, uh, did uh, much more generous than usual unemployment insurance. A lot of people got larger checks while they were on unemployment than they had been getting in terms of paychecks when they were working. All this stuff that basically pumped money into the economy, created demand, pushed up prices. And you sort of want to push back on that to push inflation down. And so some of that can be painful. Uh, you know, higher mortgage rates mean it's harder to buy a home, but at least what it is is you, know, you had too much demand, and so you're pushing down on the demand. Now we have these two supply-side stories for inflation. Uh, higher gas prices because of what's happening in Ukraine, disruption disruptions of product availability because of what's happening in China. So that stuff, unlike the the stimulus stuff that at least is getting people out there and shopping, this stuff is negative for growth in addition to being inflationary. So if you react to that with higher interest rates, the same sort of prescription, that seems like that could lead to a fairly ugly economic situation, right? Where you, you have to even further push down real economic output in order to get inflation down. Is that something, you know, is, is that going to take us into a recession? Yeah. In all of 2021, people kept making supply-side excuses for inflation. I kept thinking they were overstated. Right now, they're absolutely right. We had an incredibly fast inflation in March, and that really was mostly due to President Putin, not due um, to President Biden. Normally, I would say the central bank should just ignore that. It's going to come one day. It's going to go away the next day. And let's not hurt the economy even more than it's already hurting the economy um, to deal with it. Ignoring it is harder right now. First of all, the underlying inflation, even absent it, is already very high as opposed to just very, very high. And inflation expectations might start to increase even with these types of temporary supply things. So I think it's harder to ignore right now than it normally would be. The 
Ukraine war has obviously gotten a lot of notice. The change in gas prices has gotten a lot of notice. There's another thing I think we're starting to see in the economy that I don't think has fully flowed through in the conversation yet, which is some signs of, of real cooling in economic activity. Particularly, we, we saw an earnings report from Amazon a few days ago. Uh, quite disappointing for sales in the first quarter. They say again in the second quarter, their numbers are not going to be very good. Part of that is, is fuel costs to deliver all that stuff. But part of it is, is weak consumer demand. Amazon also says they're no longer chasing physical or staffing capacity. One of the big business stories over the last two years has been Amazon trying to hire everyone it can find, get every bit of warehouse space it can find as more and more people are buying more and more products at home. Looks like they see that ending. You know, it couldn't have gone on at the pace that it was going on forever. But that looks like a sign that things are starting to cool off, maybe both for inflation and for output. Is that something that, you know, maybe some of the some of the demand driven inflation, some of that might be finally rolling off? Um, that might be happening. Some of this is just we were so far from normal before that as people returned to more normal patterns, that was very fast growth. And you could, you know, after you lose 20 million jobs, um, you could add jobs more quickly at first, and then eventually you get back closer to where you want to be and you can't add them that quickly. So part of this is just the good news of we're getting closer to where we want to get. It's possible that we're running out of stimulus. People are still sitting on about $2.3 trillion of excess saving. That stimulus checks they got and the extra spending they didn't do in 2020 and 2021. So let's, let's spell that out for people because I, I think people find that statistic surprising because what we've seen over the last several months has been basically real consumption keeps going up even as real incomes are falling due to inflation. The way that can happen where people are, they're earning less in real terms but they're still spending more is we went through this period in 2020 where you had enormously more income than spending. People got all these stimulus checks. They got the unemployment checks. They also stopped doing a lot of the things they normally do, going to restaurants, going on vacations, that sort of thing. It caused this huge buildup uh, in consumer saving, which is going to take a long time to run through. And it's part of how you get all that that demand-driven inflation is that basically people are not worried about losing their jobs, which is reasonable in, the, in this environment for the most part. And they have this money that they're sitting on. And so when they see high prices, it annoys them. Um, but a lot of people are able to say, well, I'm going to go out and buy anyway because I have all this money. So I'm willing to pay that higher price. That's been a big driver of the inflation. And part of why it's been hard to turn it off is basically that that money it was water under the bridge. It was already out there. It's already in people's bank accounts. You can't really claw it back. But there's, you know, we're still feeling the effects of the stimulus that we did in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, normally stimulus spends out with some lag. It may be a longer lag now just because you stuffed people with so much extra money at precisely the time when they weren't able to spend that money. And we saw... Every month from March 2020 through December 2021, people saved an unusually high amount of money. It then became slightly unusually low amount of saving starting in January and again in February and March of this year. But it's only starting to you know, chip away at that large mound of excess saving. Um, there is, Josh, though, a second thing going on with inflation, which is some of it at some point um, becomes self-fulfilling. Uh, which is that, you know, wages are going up, so prices go up. Prices are going up, so wages are going up. All of that goes up because people expect all of it to go up. You don't actually need lots and lots of demand at some point in time. At some point in time, expectations take over. We don't know for sure to what extent um, that's happened and how long that'll last, but that is likely at least part of the story right now. And this sort of gets at what's hard about the Federal Reserve's job right now, right? Because when when 
talking about those Amazon uh, experience, the experience that Amazon is having, and you're talking about, you know, the extent to which this is a good news story about normalizing versus a bad news story about the economy slowing down, and that it's it can be difficult to tell exactly which is happening. That's what the Fed needs to figure out, right? Because the extent to which they need to raise interest rates depends a lot on whether the economy is already in the process of cooling off or not. This is the difficulty of, of getting what's called a soft landing, where you basically you, you get out of this period with excess inflation by slowing down the economy just enough to do that, but not so much that you push the economy into recession. As the Fed tries to do that, is it a matter of they, they need to really understand those economic fundamentals as much as possible so they can figure out exactly how far to raise interest rates? Yes. Over the next six months, I actually don't think the Fed's job is that difficult. I think what happens after that is more fraught. I say that because right now interest rates are still unusually low. Part of what they're trying to do is just get them back to normal. And normal would be at least 2.5%. Maybe if there's more inflation in the system, some number higher than 2.5%. And you know that's not about slowing the economy down and slamming the brakes and raising unemployment. That's just not about continuing to add fuel to the fire. So for the next probably six months, that's the job they're going to be doing. A more open question, though, is how much further do they go after that? Monetary policy operates with a lag. It might take a year for the thing that the Fed does to affect the economy. The economy itself is evolving and changing rapidly. And so how do you steer a car when you have to turn the steering wheel based on some curve in the road that's you know two miles ahead of where it is right now? Um, that's where the Fed is going to be getting to. It's not quite at that place yet. It knows where it needs to go for the next six months. When you say six months there and you say two and a half percent or higher, that reflects a somewhat faster pace of interest rate increases than had been expected as of a few months ago. I mean, the, the idea had been that the Fed would raise interest rates by a quarter point each time it met. The Fed meets eight times a year. So that gets you two points of rate increase over a year. Now the, the markets are expecting, and you've seen Fed officials expect uh, signaling that the, that the rate of increase will be faster than that, that we'll have some half point rate increases. So that, you know, that reflects the Fed, one, one of a few things the Fed has done to get more aggressive in its stance than it was in a few months ago. Is the Fed, at least in in terms of the, that next six-month period that you're describing, ha, is the Fed signaling its intent to do as much as you think it ought to be doing over that period, or do you think the Fed is still behind the curve? I think the Fed has caught up and maybe even on the front end gotten further ahead of the curve than many of its critics. Um, there were critics, including me, who said, you're underestimating inflation, you're underestimating inflation, you need to do more on rates. Uh, but almost none of those critics were saying do you know, two rate hikes, 50 basis points each meeting for multiple meetings in a row. I thought it was just more than the system could absorb. And to go from expecting no rate increases to expecting, you know, let's say eight rate increases in a year, to me, that just seemed like too big of a change. They've managed and engineered that change much better than I could have expected. The market you know, has taken it mostly in stride. It's not led to some sort of discontinuous reaction. So in some sense, I think they've were slower to grasp inflation, but faster to make a bigger change than most of their critics um, were calling for. Now, my concern with them remains 
what they're going to do after the next six months. I think they should do a better job saying interest rates could easily rise to three, four, five percent. We're going to keep going as long as inflation is very far from our target. So I don't think the market is fully prepared for what I think might be needed, which is um, to continue to raise rates for multiple years. But in terms of the next six months and the, the signaling they've done around that, I think a really impressive job. When you refer to the markets taking that mostly in stride, obviously people, if they're watching the stock market, they're seeing a lot of volatility. Uh, it's been a, a rough couple of weeks, at least, in, in, in the stock market. But that's that's not really about the Fed. There's a bunch of other problems in the world, including some that we've addressed. Your view is that what the markets are reacting to there is some other stuff in the real economy rather than monetary policy? Yeah. So first of all, I should say the market I care about most is credit market and lending markets, uh, which you want to cool down. You know, there's been too much lending and too much economic activity as a result of that. But you don't want to cool it down in some highly discontinuous manner where credit markets seize up, it becomes impossible to get loans. You know, there's no buyers for bonds or something like that. And none of that has happened. Prices have adjusted, but things have adjusted relatively continuously. I don't think the Fed should have as its objective a high stock market or a low stock market. If it wanted to make the stock market high, it would have no problem doing that for six Six months, a year, maybe two years. Um, <laughs> but eventually the fall in the market would be even larger as a result. I think most of the fall in the market has been Russia, Ukraine. Some of it has been probably that the market got ahead of where it should have been and better to address that now in a smaller way than to have it adjust in a bigger way later on. So yeah, I'd love the market to be up, not down for my own you know, personal <laughs> sake, but that just shouldn't be what they're trying to do. Your colleague, Larry Summers, both your colleague at Harvard and also was, was your colleague in the Clinton and Obama administrations, has been fond of this statistic lately where he says, you know, for the last 75 years, every time that inflation went over 4% and unemployment went under 5% at the same time, there was a recession within two years. And he's saying this basically to warn about the risk of a hard landing, uh, that, you know, the, the consequence of having allowed inflation to overheat like this, the Fed having gotten beyond the curve, is a really substantial likelihood that we're going to be in a recession within the next two years. Uh, so first of all, I guess, do you, do you share, are you as alarmed as he is? I think there's reason to be nervous, but I'm way less dark than he is. Because that had a little bit of a fun fact feel to me, like that you can get baseball statistics like this, where you come up with, you know, a, a specific enough set of indicators and you say, well, this has always happened when this when this happened. But I guess the broader point there is supposed to be basically that it's, it's a lot easier for the Fed to keep inflation on target than to get it back onto target once it has gotten off. Is that basically one of the lessons that we've learned from here that we're going to, the, this, this task the Fed has for itself up ahead is, is harder than it would have been to get this right last year? Or is that wrong? That is certainly true. The Phillips curve was very flat. The Phillips curve says if the unemployment rate goes down, here's how much inflation goes up. When you say it's very flat, it says the unemployment rate can go down without inflation going up very much. That's a wonderful thing when you can take advantage of it. But when inflation is high, that very same fact about the world becomes really painful because it says you raise unemployment by a point and inflation only comes down a little bit. So you need to raise unemployment by a lot or raise it for a long period of time. I'm not saying we know for certain that that's the way the economy is going to operate right now, but there's a real reason to be afraid that it would take 
very high unemployment for a prolonged period of time um, to bring the inflation down. I'm, I'm not, by the way, ready to recommend that right now. I'm not sure I'd ever be ready to recommend that, but there's a chance that's what would actually be needed. That sounds like a very alarming thing you just said, even though you said you're you're not alarmed like like Larry is. Like if that if the outlook is basically that, you know, the, the painful actions that the Fed will have to take. And again, when we when we talk about the Fed's gonna cool the economy by raising interest rates, it means higher mortgage rates, harder to buy a house, harder for businesses to invest. It's discouraging real economic activity. If the outlook for that is that it's gonna significantly increase unemployment without doing much to damp inflation, that sounds like a really that sounds like a really bad forecast. Look, we're not nineteen eighty where we've had a decade of high inflation. We're a year into this. I am worried about the persistence of it, not at 8%, by the way, but it's something more like 4 or 5%. I'm worried about the persistence of it, but I'm not sure. We could get lucky. Um, inflation expectations maybe are anchored. The demand goes away. Some of this was on the supply side, and those things normalize. And so know, 20, 25% chance we get lucky. I think for the Fed to move policy quickly to neutral and hope it gets lucky is the best thing for it to do right now. <laughs> then six months, nine months, a year from now, we'll have a better idea about whether we got lucky or not, a better idea about what some of the additional options are. And at some point, by the way, I wouldn't leave this all up to the Fed. I would say fiscal policies with tax and budget policy need to come in to help. That's interesting you say that, because one thing you said in February is I, I asked you about, you know, would deficit reduction reduce inflation? What you said was yes, but that's not how I would reduce inflation. Has your view on that changed in the last few months? Now now you think we need a deficit reduction package? I, I think I just said to you a moment ago, a year from now or nine months from now, okay. at some point we need to start having that conversation. I mean, start having the conversation now is fine. I wouldn't recommend right now deficit reduction as a way to control inflation. I'm not against it, but I don't think it's a really important way. But if the Fed can't do it and we don't get lucky, then absolutely a year from now, I think we do need to take much, much more seriously bringing in that additional tool. It's interesting because one of the top policy conversations happening in Washington right now is still a conversation about a form of fiscal expansion. And we're coming off this period, you know, for, well, really for 20 years, but especially for the last two years, where it was like there were no trade-offs, and it was just how can we figure out how to get as much money out the door as possible. And we, we learned too late that there were, in fact, some trade-offs here, and we probably did several hundred billion or a trillion dollars too much of fiscal expansion in the form of the American Rescue Plan. But the way the politics worked for both political parties was basically you can cut taxes and raise spending, and it doesn't seem to push interest rates up. And it was actual, like, free lunch policymaking. And the economic situation is such that that's over, but the, the politics are still sort of where they were. And the one of the flavors of this fiscal expansion that's popular among a lot of people on the left is cancellation of student debt. And you had President Biden, whose line originally had been that, you know, he he's willing to sign a piece of legislation to cancel up to $10,000 of, of student debt per borrower, but that he wasn't going to do this by executive action. There's this sort of contested legal theory that the, the president or the secretary of education can just cancel with the stroke of a pen some or all of, of certain people's student debt. Now the news reports are that the administration's actually looking at doing that. And so you have all these, you know, there's political arguments about it, about fairness, and, you know, well, th this doesn't do anything for people who never went to college. It doesn't do anything for people who've already paid off their debt. But in terms of the economic conversation, this would be inflationary, right? It's basically, it's just handing a bunch of people a bunch of money. And there was a time where you might have said, well, we haven't had enough fiscal stimulus. This is a tool available to the president to stimulate the economy. 
now you don't want to stimulate the economy, but that is what it would do, right? It would push prices up. Absolutely. And in some sense, you know, you said no one wants to talk about trade-offs. That's true. But that doesn't mean there aren't any trade-offs out there. And so when you give student loan interest relief to one group of people or debt relief to one group of people, um, it's not just that you're not helping others. You're actually hurting them because we can only make so much as a country. And if some people are able to claim more of that, um, they're going to basically drive the price up, leaving other people able to claim um, less of that. So let's say it is three-tenths added to the inflation rate. That's maybe $200 from the, I don't know, 85% of people that don't benefit from this policy going to something that is more than $200, obviously, for the minority of people that do benefit from the dollars. And just to be clear, the $200 is sort of an illustrative order of magnitude, but one I think is, is, mm-hmm. is plausible. You mentioned interest rate relief because, of course, the, we've already had a substantial amount of, of student loan relief from the fact that we've had freezing of most of the student loan debt in the United States, where people, they don't have to make principal payments and they're not accruing any interest. And so that's, I think, part of the, the reason discussions about this get a little bit confused is because when it's not literally a check going into someone's bank account, people can sort of act like it's there's not a real fiscal cost here. It's like it's just numbers on a page, but all money is just numbers on a page. But basically, it's, you know, the, there's been, it's something like $60 billion a year worth of effective debt relief being handed out by the fact that you're just not charging people interest on their student loans. And that is another form of fiscal expansion that we've had and that is ongoing even as almost all the other pandemic-related fiscal expansion is over. We're not doing the enhanced unemployment anymore and that sort of thing. And so one thing I wonder about the politics of this as the White House figures out what to do about the fact they've had the student loan pause. I think they have good reason to worry politically about what happens if you start right before the midterm election, requiring tens of millions of borrowers to resume payments on loans that they haven't been paying for a couple of years. If you couple, if you do some sort of partial student debt relief, maybe you cancel $10,000 a borrower, or maybe they come up with some other number, but you also resume the payments. Uh, and say, you know, here, instead of this temporary thing, we're going to do this permanent thing. We're giving everyone some amount of relief. It's targeted and that it's, you know, it's not going to, you know, if you're a doctor, you're not getting $250,000 worth of your loans canceled. You have a high income. You can pay that yourself. But you give some sort of targeted relief and you say, and because of that, and because we're, we're out of the acute pandemic, we're going to start collecting interest again. We're going to start making people pay interest on the loans after the portion of it that's been canceled. So you have two offsetting effects there, right? You have an inflationary effect from the cancellation, but you also have a disinflationary effect from resuming those payments. You could, in theory, come up with a cancellation amount such that those effects would be about equal, right? Yeah. This all depends on your baseline. If your baseline is that interest payments are resuming in September, then any debt relief you do is inflationary compared to that. If your baseline is we're going to continue the interest relief forever— then I think $10,000 of cancellation with income limits on it is roughly neutral for inflation because you get more interest payments from people, especially with bigger loans and higher incomes, and then you have lower from others. And by the way, principal relief is probably not as inflationary. It's a little bit like an increase to your wealth rather than an increase to your income. Yeah, I've been wondering how to how to think about that because there's there's this concept in economics called Higgs Simons income, which basically says that your income is your consumption plus the change in your net wealth. So if you own stock and the stock went up in value, that's part of your income. Uh, if it went down in value, that's negative income to you. This is not really how people think about their own income. Um, they don't really think about changes in asset values as being income streams to them. 
even though that affects you know the the financial resources that they have available to them to consume and spend going forward. Uh, and so you've had a, a couple of ways in which that that could be sort of distorting the way that people think about their income is not exactly what an economist would say that their income is or that their income has been affected by these policies. So with the student loan pause, not having to pay interest on your student debt is effectively an increase to your income. Not having to make principal payments against your student debt is not an increase to your income. It's, you know, because that's not an expense. It's paying down a debt. It increases your net wealth. However, if someone is cash flow constrained um, and they are relieved of their obligation to pay principal and interest on their student loans, they might take some of the money that they would have used for principal reduction and use it for current consumption. So that might mean that the student loan pause is more inflationary than you'd expect if you thought that you know people are really like doing economist brain here and saying, well, the interest savings, that's real savings, that I can go spend, but the principal part, I'm going to have to pay that principal in the future, so I better set it aside so I can pay the principal down later. So maybe the student loan pause is, is more inflationary than you'd expect. And then for the reasons you described, maybe the debt cancellation is less inflationary than you'd expect because people weren't really thinking about the fact that they have to pay this money at some point, especially if there's been this pause, they might have thought that it was never going to resume. So I, you know, my mental model about debt cancellation, if you did the really uncapped sort of stuff, is you'd have a bunch of doctors and lawyers who have really high debt burdens and also high incomes who are waiting to buy a house because they have all this student loan debt to pay off. Then you cancel the debt all at once. I assume they go out tomorrow, they try to buy a house because they have this high income. They know that and their ability to afford a house has gone up because they've been relieved of this debt. So you could see the inf inflation end up specifically in home prices if, if, if you did that. In fact, one of the arguments that advocates of debt cancellation make is that it will help people buy homes. Now, of course, because it doesn't cause the creation of more homes, then that should just flow into bidding up home prices. And the benefit would actually be absorbed by the people who own the houses already because they'd get higher prices rather than by the, the people who are going out and buying the houses. But basically, how do, you, how do you think about all of that if you're trying to figure out using these sort of weird backdoor ways to do stimulus? It's not just sending people a check. How do you figure out what's going to be relatively inflationary or not? Look, so first of all, we don't have a lot of empirical evidence on this. We haven't gone through anything like what we're going through at this moment. And so... We don't know for sure, uh, would be the first thing I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is you do want to have at least a modicum of consistency, which if you were out there saying student loan debt relief is great fiscal stimulus two years ago and that it's really going to help the economy, you can't really deny that in the current circumstances, it's actually going to increase inflation a lot. So there's some modicum of consistency. Now, for myself, I would distinguish between the interest relief, where you sort of definitely uh, almost spend it or spend half of it, the amortization of the principal, the piece of the principal relief that you're getting each year that you don't have to pay back anymore, where maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's what you were talking about. And then the wealth effect of the future principal that you're not going to have to pay in future years. Um, that third one, in most other areas, it's relatively small. It's like people spend 5% a year of um, net wealth that they get. And so my best guess is that that forward-going principal relief is actually a lot smaller than the advocates were saying in terms of stimulus two years ago, and thus actually is probably smaller in terms of inflation right now. That's a best guess, but not one with any degree of, of confidence. So how do, you, how do you think about these sorts of things if you're trying to make policy in the White House? Because I mean, you ran the National Economic Council and you, and you ran the Council of Economic Advisors, sort of two of the key advisory bodies in, in the White House on economic policymaking. 
And I assume most economists would not like to do any of this right now, that their first best policy would be resume the payments, don't do any of this stuff that might stimulate the economy because that's just going to produce inflation right now. Don't do student debt relief right now. It's not well targeted. It's not, it doesn't actually meet an economic need that we have today. But there's a huge political urge to do something in this area, both because you have these people who have been relying on the pause, they're going to be really mad if you stop the pause, and because you have these activist groups. I don't know about the extent to which they speak for public opinion or not, but they're certainly thought of in Democratic Party policymaking circles, you know, that it's important to keep the groups happy for whatever reason. And so you're in a position where you have to do something that you know is not your first best economic policy. How do you think about making choices within that constrained political space that you do as little damage to the economy as possible while meeting those political objectives? I mean, one, one thing, I mean, we talk about, you know, this balance of if it allows you to turn the payments back on for the debt that isn't relieved, then maybe that's better than just keeping the policy where it is right now. But how do you conceive of that role if you're in that advisory space where you have to advise people how to do not exactly what you would have them do, but the best thing available given the political constraints? So first of all, you have to be able to do that. If you want to be an economic advisor who can only say, here's the first best thing to do, everything else is terrible, um, that's just not very useful. Um, there's some people, you see this on the progressive side, they have like their big, bold policy and they won't compromise and they love that glorious loss. Um, you see that among economists too. Like, I was in favor of the right thing, no one else was, I lost and it's amazing, I'm unsullied by my loss. So you have to get comfortable thinking about the second best policy, the third best, the fourth best. I was willing to go as high as the 13th best and, and then I drew the line. <laughs> if it went all the way to 14, I'm out of there. Um, so you need to get comfortable with that. Um, you need to let people understand what the different consequences of the different policies are. And by the way, it's not just inflation. You know, this money comes from somewhere. It comes from someone else. It comes from something else in the future. Um, there is some opportunity cost to doing it even if there's no inflation. So you have to let people understand that. Um, and by the way, if you ask what the 14th best policy is, the 14th best policy, the place where I draw the line, is giving complete interest relief every month, doing it four months at a time, and then extending it for four months at a time, and then extending it four <laughs> months at a time, because that goes to the doctors, the lawyers, people with high incomes, you know, the more... Uh, fancier the degree you got, the more you get from that policy. So, you know, I don't like the $10,000 of re uh, debt relief income related, but it's definitely not the worst uh, idea out there. The worst idea is continuing with what we've been doing. It's funny because you um, you had an episode somewhat related to this in the Obama administration related to 529 college savings plans, which are, these are these tax-preferred accounts. They're sort of similar to a 401k, but they're for saving for college. The benefit overwhelmingly goes to people with high incomes because that's who has all the money to sock away into these accounts. And because the way that they are subsidized is that it's shielded from tax, the higher your tax rate is, the more valuable that subsidy is. And so you had what I thought was on the merits a really good idea that President Obama proposed that you're going to replace this program with some sort of tax credit program that's much more targeted at people with low and moderate incomes. And one reason that's better is that, you know, children of people who have a family income of $250,000 are very likely to go to college whether or not they are handed a subsidy. So if one of your goals with the subsidies is to get people to attend college who otherwise wouldn't, that's sort of the worst people to give subsidies to even before you get into any sort of fairness question. And so this was proposed and retracted very quickly because it turns out that like all of the newsrooms of major publications in the United States are staffed by people, the senior people in those newsrooms have family incomes in that range around 250000 300000 and they really do not like it uh, when you try to take away their tax benefits. So did you, I mean, 
when the president proposed that and you were on on the team that developed this proposal, did you guys anticipate the level of vitriol that was going to be thrown at that? Because it, it seems very similar to me to the student debt relief. There's a lot of people, there are specific people who would get a lot of benefit, especially out of a full cancellation. They're very adamant about it and they believe they deserve it. And sort of similarly, the 529 plans, those, you know, those affluent professional families in Bethesda, they really believe they deserve their 529s. They were really angry when Obama tried to take those away. Yeah. Oh, I was one of a very small number of people that developed that proposal, um, helped manage the rollout. And that's why no one asked me for political advice. And <laughs> that plan had um, two pieces. We got rid of various current student loan benefits and replaced it with you know, a much broader and better thing. One of the ones we got rid of was actually the ability of people who make up to, I believe it's $50,000 a year to deduct their interest on their student loans. And we were actually terrified that that was going to blow up in our faces. And we gamed out the attacks people would have on him eliminating the deductibility of student interest. And we were going to point out, you know, we're replacing it with something that was, I don't know, 50 times larger than it or something like that. That's what we were worried about. It turns out not a lot of columnists in Washington make less than $50,000 a year. So none of them qualified for that. None of them were getting that. And we got no incoming at all about that. It was all the 529 plan. Um, and you can't understate how much. I did for the State of the Union a Bloomberg Press roundtable. I had like 15 Bloomberg reporters, me and uh, Jeff Zients did it together. And more than half of the questions about the State of the Union were about this one proposal that was a part <laughs> of an overall um, tax proposal. So the degree of passion and vitriol was among the very biggest I experienced in eight years. And yeah, that's sad and depressing to me, but uh, it's a reality and a reality I did not understand uh, as well before that as I do now. But I, I think this gets at a really serious political problem for the Democratic Party right now, which is the extent to which it has become a constituent service party for the interests of a set of very highly educated people who have relatively high incomes, if not extremely high incomes, and are just really focused on what their concerns are in a way that I think is, is out of touch with people who don't have student debt because they don't have any sort of higher education. I mean, because if you're going to be doing a sort of gimmicky thing that gives money out at a time when that's inappropriate in the economy because of inflation, there's a menu of things that are available. I mean, I, I think the, the arguments against student debt relief right now are very similar from the economic and inflation perspective, are very similar to the arguments against a gas tax holiday, which is that, you know, if you relieve people of their of, of the gasoline tax at this time, uh, you know, there are obvious political reasons to do that. It pushes down on, on the price of the pump. But one problem with it is that it would be inflationary. It's a tax cut at a time that we don't really need a tax cut. But that at least would go to virtually everyone. Whereas student debt relief is not is going to reach tens of millions of people, but the vast majority of Americans will get no direct benefit from it. And as you point out, will actually come out behind because they will experience the price inflation that's driven by people going out and trying to buy more things. But they didn't get any relief to offset that. It's just remarkable to me that that would be at the top of the agenda rather than the gas tax holiday, which at least would be something you could point to and say you did something for virtually everybody. I just find it crazy that this is the priority that gets set. I mean, I know you're not a fan of a gas tax holiday. I, I wrote a piece making a political case for it, and you said basically, you know, the the my piece acknowledged that it was, you know, on its fundamentals, not really an ideal economic policy. And you said, you know, sometimes you have to do unideal things uh, for political reasons. I don't know if Josh is right that the politics actually militate for this, but this is the sort of argument you would make. It's weird to me that the people in the room are making that argument 
clearly for the uh, for the student debt relief and not making it apparently for the gas tax holiday. Yeah, look, I'm not an unbiased reader of political data. I have the policies I like, and I'll tend to be biased and sort of think uh, people might like them also. On the gas tax holiday, I did some musing about it being potentially politically unpopular. I then read your piece. Your piece was way more persuasive um, than any of my musings, so I was convinced maybe it would actually be popular. Um, With all that big disclaimer, I'm now going to muse about the student loan debt relief and agree with what you were saying. And just to give an example that I think should give us all pause, the child tax credit last year went to 60 million children. I think it was about 30 million families. It went to almost everyone with children. Children are a very sympathetic group. It went to them every month in a highly salient way, and it just wasn't that popular. It wasn't very unpopular, um, but it wasn't that popular. And the fact that that wasn't that popular, you then do student loan debt relief. It's going to fewer people. There's a bunch of people who will be mad because they'll feel, oh, I paid off my loans or I never went to college or that person borrowed too much. The possibilities for backfiring here are you know considerably greater and just look back at the housing relief. We were getting, you know, Obama, people think he didn't do enough. I think he didn't do enough. Politically, he did way more than made any sense. That wasn't just the Tea Party objecting. That was broadly unpopular to help homeowners at that time in the middle of a housing crisis. Well, I mean, I think this sort of gets at the difficulty of finding anything that is truly universal or even a majority experience. I mean, children obviously are extremely common, yet the average American adult does not have a dependent child under the age of 18. And so even an extremely broad policy like increasing the child tax credit, the average voter is not going to get any direct benefit from that. I mean, Ariel Edwards-Levy, who's the, the polling editor at CNN, as the, the rate of Americans who'd been vaccinated kept going up and up, she kept tweeting about, you know, here's now that, you know, now that 58% or 64% or whatever of Americans have been vaccinated, that's more than all these things that sound really universal that actually aren't. Only 53% of people plan to watch the Super Bowl in a given year. Only 61% of people ever play video right, But the difference, by the way, is with children— even if you don't have one right now, most people sort of like them and think right. it's like good that somebody else had them. Um, whereas student loans, you know. The, the point I just want to get back to is that like you, consuming gasoline is one of the most universal experiences for American adults. Almost everyone drives and almost all the cars are internal combustion engine cars. And so if you're trying to come up with something to do that people will you know, feel thankful for at the ballot box. I think it's hard to think of something more compelling for that than a gas tax holiday, which is why a bunch of states are, are doing that or something related. You know, the California is even going to do rebates to, to owners of motor vehicles, which is not, no economist is going to tell you that's the first best policy. But I think, you know, that if, you're, if you're reaching for something that really brings Americans together, it's hard to think of something better for that than driving. Yeah, no, look, that's probably a good example of a 13th best policy. Um, so wouldn't have, <laughs> wouldn't have resigned over it if there was a very good political reason to do it. (laughs) Let's leave it there. Jason Furman, I want to thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. Jason Furman is the Aetna Professor of Practice of Economic Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He co-teaches Principles of Economics, and he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. They're a lot of fun in the comments. So please consider supporting the Very Serious Podcast Newsletter as a paying subscriber. 
Your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast and makes the whole venture possible. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 